0: This is the Brainstorm Podcast.
1: A medical podcast where we explore issues in bioethics and neuroethics, and brainstorm ideas to ethical and systemic problems in healthcare.
0: I'm your co-host, Liz Gandakley, a doctor, current internal medicine resident, and former lawyer.
1: And I'm your co-host, Jeshua Karanakaran, also a doctor and current neurosurgery researcher.
0: Let's brainstorm. Hey, Jesh. Hey, Liz. How's it going?
1: It's going great. I'm so excited about this podcast.
0: Yeah, here we are, our first episode.
1: I know. And uh, to think we've come so far uh, in all our planning and what uh, uh, kind of brought us here. Liz and I met in medical school and we uh, hit it off right there over many conversations about philosophy and ethics and medicine, and we thought it would be exciting to share what we've experienced and thought with all of you who are listening.
0: Exactly. I mean, I think we became friends because we were just like the smartest people in class. Oh, absolutely. Just like all that. So no, but it's been
1: undeniable geniuses. Exactly. Exactly.
0: Yeah. It's perfect. No, but this is great. I think it's going to be a really awesome format to talk about, you know, ethical issues that we see clinically and kind of, you know, where the field of bioethics is going. And I'm excited for having a lot of guests on and, you know, kind of combining different parts of philosophy and medicine and ethics. So, yeah, absolutely. Great.
1: And I think both of us have great and unique backgrounds to bring to this. Uh, And Liz, you were a lawyer in your past life uh, of uh, many, many accomplishments, right?
0: Yes. Don't, don't hold it against me. So it's good. Yeah. So yeah. So I was a lawyer, which was fun. And I think that, you know, got me really interested in thinking about, you know, things critically and approaching things from a, a legal mindset. Right. And then uh, studied bioethics, also got a master's in bioethics, um, which kind of merged that interest that I had in law and medicine. And then finally took the the last step and, and went to med school and, you know, now I'm in residency. So it's been good. Yeah. yeah,
1: I feel like uh, there's no better place to tread that uh, ethical uh, discussions than if you studied law and that bioethics at that juxtaposition. That's such a such a rich field.
0: Yeah, and I know you have such a an interesting background in terms of your interest in neuroscience and all the research that you've done too.
1: Yes, I, I mean, uh, my research. I've been very big in neuroscience research and neurology research, especially in um, degenerative diseases. Uh, I was a musician. Uh, I studied music for many many years as you know Liz um, and uh, had the privilege of uh, playing for our combined graduation ceremonies in med school if you remember and um, it was uh, it was a lot of fun and it kind of you know one of the things that i learned from that is you see a lot of musicians who get older suffer a lot of degenerative disease and they can't play anymore and it's kind of what uh, really affects their mental health and their well-being and so that started me on this journey and as long as i also had some family history of this about you know, what's going on with the brain and and the and as you study more you start figuring out you know there's a lot of ethics involved when it comes to dealing with someone's brain and how you're affecting the way they think and behave and uh, you know through med school and after that even right now currently i'm working on a lot of those kinds of stuff so it's exciting uh kind of to bridge that gap uh, between all of our different backgrounds and what we're doing here
0: I'm super excited. And I think we have a lot of uh, really cool things planned for this podcast. So I know we're gonna, you know, talk about a lot of different issues and have a lot of uh, guests who can kind of give us insight into what they think and what, you know, the facts are for some of these ethical issues. And then, you know, we and other guests will talk about, you know, the different angles and kind of even sometimes debate some of these things. And, you know, some of them will get into, neuroethics, as you mentioned, um, deep brain stimulation, you know, advanced directives, uh, you know, end of life conversations that we see clinically, kind of different aspects of mental health and medicine, including addiction, that kind of thing. So I, I'm excited for all of the different areas that we can talk about. So
1: absolutely. And it's going to be wonderful. And for, for all of you who are listening, of course, you know, if you might be sitting here listening to this and saying, well, I'm not sure I don't practice medicine. I'm not in the field. I don't know if I, I should be knowing these things. We're going to make this as relatable to you and as understandable to you as possible. And we hope that you leave our podcast every time having a better understanding of what's going on behind the scenes and how these things are happening and all the different controversies that may or may not affect you or someone you know's life.
0: Sounds good. Well, should we should start with just a little? Let's go ahead. Yeah. Yes. All right.
1: Liz, you want to go ahead with that?
0: I, I can just talk a little bit about, you know, one of the, one of the cases that kind of really got me interested, you know, for one of the first times, you know, when I was working clinically and sort of thinking about these ethical issues. Um, and it's something I I wrote about too, because it sort of struck me as, you know, here I am this person who's studied bioethics, you know, I've I've had these conversations in class about um, all of the pillars of bioethic, things like autonomy, um, you know, beneficence, all these things. And it's, it's a case where I really found myself essentially meeting one of these cases that you might otherwise see class and knowing what the right thing to do is because I'd studied it, I know all these things, and yet finding that it was really difficult to, to carry out from an ethical standpoint. I had a patient who was a Jehovah's Witness. And you know, the the interesting thing about this that sometimes we talk about in medicine um, is that that is someone who typically is not going to accept blood products, right? And just with any, um, you know, with any religious affiliation or religious belief, of course, there are going to be people who, you know, fall on all different sides of this. There are going to be some people who will take blood products, some people who won't. Um, But in this case, it was someone who um, had made that, that determination that accepting blood products, including a blood transfusion, would be against her religious beliefs. And so, you know, as I mentioned, I thought to myself, okay, yeah, I've, I've studied this. That's, that's, that's important. You know, this is a decision that you should make and I respect that for you. I knew of course that there's more to medicine than prolonging life. And of course that, you know, we have a role of, of providing information to patients and, you know, ultimately together coming up with a plan that best meets their goals and their needs. Um, but It's it's fuzzier in practice, right, than it is. uh, There's a lot more clarity in the classroom or when you're reading about, you know, an ethical topic or discussing it in the classroom and kind of saying, oh, well, this is what we should do. This is what we shouldn't do. So it was interesting to kind of experience that in person. But I found it to be. Just difficult because I saw this person every day. Um, she was very anemic. Her her blood counts were getting lower and lower because she had um, cancer as well as some blood loss, and it was getting to the point where you know um, we had to have these conversations with her because it became clear that if she wasn't going to get a blood transfusion um, you know, she likely would die. Right. And so, you know, it was, it was hard for me to have these conversations and and know that, that we would be able in the hospital to give someone a blood transfusion. You know, we do it day in and day out, but I, I wasn't going to be able to place that order to do it, uh, because of the person's, um, beliefs. And, you know, we had long conversations. Um, I learned a lot about her life and the things that mattered to her. I learned that, um, you know, she had been a nurse before her diagnosis, someone who, trusts in medicine, believes in science. Um, I learned what a source of support her church community had been to her. I got to know her and her husband you know, really well over the course of the days that I worked on the service and, and treated her. And it, it became difficult, right? So her hemoglobin levels, which is a marker of anemia and sort of not having enough of the protein in your blood that really carries oxygen to the rest of your body, you know, crept down to very low numbers and, you know, she became very symptomatic. Um, we all started to realize, you know, her, her husband, me, that she only had a few days left to live. And, you know, ultimately this was, as I said, her decision. And every day I would come to her and and talk to her and give her the information. And, you know, she always had the opportunity to kind of make decisions. And I, I will just say, you know, witnessing Her decline and ultimately, you know, her death um, in a hospital where, as I said, we order blood products every day, it just really left me with a, a transformative lesson, I think, right? That, you know, practicing medicine is really not cut and dry. And, you know, we can kind of say... Okay, here's an algorithm, or you know, here's what we should do if this arises or this happens, and here's information that we can draw on or kind of tell our patients for for what to do. But you know, the right thing to do ultimately is is a little bit fuzzier, and and it's not really your decision as a doctor at the end of the day. So yeah,
1: I can imagine, especially because as as you know, as a provider for this kind of patient, you are forming such a close personal relationship with them and some of their, probably the most vulnerable time of their lives. Uh, And so you really are in that position where you want to help them as much as possible, but you also have to balance that innate desire to help them with what they want.
0: Yeah, exactly. And I think it comes up so often in medicine too where sometimes you'll think to yourself, "Oh, well, you know, my job is to to save this patient, right? Or my job is to to do this. I know that we have this medication or this treatment or this what have you, and so this is what we should do." But I think it takes some time and some really self-reflection to to think about, you know, when we shouldn't do things and when it's right to kind of really talk to the patient and understand what um, you know, what their what their kind of life goals are going to be, right? So
1: absolutely absolutely those kinds of things and you're right they come up in medicine so often um, uh, i also had a similar uh, parallel case um, i when i was a, a third year medical student um, i had a surgery rotation and uh, had this patient that was brought in and he hadn't had a lot of care health care in his life you know he was someone who didn't have a lot of close family a little bit here and there but he was often in and out of the hospital uh, and, you know, he was in the hospital for some while because he had abdominal pain and we did some workup on him and eventually it was determined that his liver was failing. And in most situations, you know, we would say, okay, what do we do for this kind of patient who's not that old? You know, he could have been my father, which is he's not that old, you know, and we wanted to sort of offer him the options available. but. One of the things the only definitive treatment the only treatment that really would have cured him would have been a liver transplant um but you know the transplant system as you know there are so many people waiting for organs and so many people who are in need of of donors that there is a system to figure out who gets what organs when, and their regulations on that you know people and boards come up with that information all the time and uh when i went in one room it was he was my personal patient, I had to take care of him and break the news for him. And he was a rather cantankerous fellow. He didn't really like to talk to a lot of individuals, but he would talk to me because I spent the most time with him as, as a medical student. That's kind of what the privilege I get. You and you probably, Liz, got to experience this too. We have a little bit more leeway in doing this. And I had to talk to him and say, well, you know, unfortunately, some of the characteristics of your condition don't make you eligible for this transplant. And that's hard to do because, again, that is, we we want to do everything in our power to help someone, and we have the tools sometimes necessary, but we also have to balance that again with all these other things going on behind the scenes. And there's a lot of evidence for why these criteria were developed, why some people get these organs, some people don't. And sometimes it doesn't sound very fair, but those are things that you know I had to read into. And the attending, who is the uh, the surgeon who was you know overseeing this patient, the actual surgeon who was my, my Sort of supervisor or mentor, so to speak, uh, came in to the room and had to tell him the same thing and had to explain to him why this was not a possibility. And we sat with him for about 10 minutes as that information sort of sunk into his mind. And I will never forget that he was very unemotional for the previous six days of his hospitalization. And right then and there, he started to cry and said, Will I even make it to Christmas? Because I want to see my daughter. And that moment stuck with. And, you know, I never I never forgot about it. And I tell the story over and over again to everyone I hear because it really drove not just a concept of you know, mortality and things that happen in the hospital in that regard, but also sometimes knowing that you can't do everything you want to do, just like what Liz said. And, uh, you know, the ethics of that, Sometimes, sometimes you just can't and you have to understand why and you have to figure out how these how these guidelines came into place and maybe if we need these guidelines to be modified or apply to other things like brain stimulation or things like that and those are those are uh, those are things that sort of piqued my interest in this and uh, really set me thinking about what it means to be a physician is more than just finding a cure for someone it's also uh, balancing all these interplay and interchangeable parts in medicine
0: Yeah, it's really powerful. Thanks for sharing that. I think, you know, they're kind of good similarities between the two stories, right? One thing that is interesting, I think, is that, you know, for both of us, these kind of formative, you know, things that we really thought about occurred when we were students. And I think it's it's interesting that you mentioned that because you do have more time to kind of spend with your patients as a student, you know, when you're in residency um, or after that, you know, sometimes you just have a little bit less time. And I think, there's a little bit of you know what i hear from some people is that you've you've seen so many things and so maybe you lack kind of the fresh eyes to think to yourself like this is a this is a tough situation, you know, because maybe you've seen it happen so many times. But I think that, you know, for example, for me, for this, this person who, you know, was kind of um, declining certain um, certain care, you know, for for obviously good reasons, it was just, it was hard to, to see because we're used to just, okay, you do this, you treat this, you do this, right? And I think for you too, you had the ability to really get to know this person so well, right, and kind of spend time with them every day, even more so than you would be able to otherwise. So that's really interesting. And I think too, that's the key, right? I think we we all learn about how, you know, many, many years ago, doctors maybe would have made decisions for their patients without even telling them. They would have said, just take this pill, don't worry about what it's for. Or, you know, some family member would have said, you know, well, don't tell the patient this, like this, it's going to hurt them or something. And, you know, now we, we kind of think a lot more um, critically about how to, how to come to decisions based on what we've come to know to be a patient's um, interests and kind of, you know, desires in life. Right. But it takes time and it takes a lot of emotional energy. Right. And so I think that hopefully this can be a space that we can kind of really think critically about the decisions that we make in those kind of spaces and whether they're the right ones and kind of what policies should guide those. Right. So yeah, it's really interesting.
1: And what you just said kind of reminded me of a time i did a master's in biotech and uh one of the professors i had was it was an immunology was immunology class and we discussed the you know, techniques of immunology which is uh overlaps with biotech and the professor was not a medical doctor he was a phd but he worked very very closely with a lot of mds at a, at a pretty good institution and he made a statement that stuck with me. Uh, Towards the end of the semester, he'd looked at all of us. Most of us were actually going to med school. The program was designed for people who were interested in medicine and wanted a career at that. And so he knew who he was talking to, and he made the statement. As a physician, remember that you are actually serving the patient only in an advisory capacity. You're not telling them they have to do something. You are there to advise them. And if they want to take your advice, they will take it. If they choose to make a different decision, you have to let them do that. And I think that is hard because Liz, like you said, historically, it's one of those things where we learn all of these uh, diagnoses, these uh, these diagnostic algorithms, you know, these these treatments that are gold standards, what we have to do in situations. and the more we do it, the more automated it becomes to the point that, we don't really go through the critical process of thinking sometimes through these things as much as we did when we were students, when we were first learning it. And that autopilot button sometimes has to be hit, pause on, just because we have to consult what the patient says. you have to consider that.
0: I've thought a lot actually about that. Uh, what you talk about in terms of the role of doctors in an advisory capacity to patients, and really how it parallels. Um, you know, being a lawyer as well, um, as well as other kind of professions like that. Because I think, you know, as an attorney, um, whether you're working with an individual client or a corporate client or what have you, the government, um, you know, you can take all of the information that's given to you and you have an understanding of the law, and then you can present that to your client and say, listen, these are your risks. And, these are the courses of actions that you can take. And this is what the law says. And at the end of the day, you know, it really comes down to, especially in, you know, a corporate setting or something like that, the risk profile of the client and kind of what they ultimately want to do. Um, And you may not, you know, necessarily agree with that or think it's the best course of action, but, you know, your role is really less the ultimate decision maker, but more the person who's providing that advice and kind of allowing that that client or in this case the patient to really make a decision based on what their own um you know risk profile and their own desires are so yeah it's really interesting i
1: i I think this will be a great space for us to share those ideas we're going to have guests come in and talk about these things as well and share their perspective so it's not just going to be you and me we're going to hear from experts who have been doing some of these things in the fields for a very long time and maybe have struck a better balance that, than we have. We hope to learn from them.
0: I'm excited. I think it's a good way to open up our conversation here. And I'm super excited to see where we go with this and kind of what we can all learn and talk about. So, and uh, also excited to hear what everyone out there, you know, thanks for listening and coming to our show, however you found it. And if you find a topic that's interesting or a case that you kind of, you know, are interested in bringing up to us, you know, please send it to us. So that'd be Absolutely.
1: Great. Thank you for joining us. And we look forward to hearing from you.
0: All right. Thanks, everybody. Thanks. This podcast is intended for education, information, and entertainment.
1: Thanks for listening to the Brainstorm podcast. While we are doctors and a lawyer, we are not your doctors or your lawyer. So nothing in this podcast should be taken as medical or legal advice
0: any kind. Also, all references to patients have been modified to protect patient identity.
1: The thoughts and opinions expressed in this podcast are ours alone and do not reflect those of our lawyers or anyone else.
0: Don't forget to send us thoughts, questions, or ideas for future episodes to medbrainstorm at gmail.com
1: and follow us on Twitter at at atmedbrainstorm.